We're going to talk a little bit about, about uh, making sense of the Bible this morning. The first Sunday in this series, we talked about why we should read the Bible. And uh, last week, we talked about why we can trust the Bible. It's unbreakable. <clears throat> and this morning, we're going to talk about how to read the Bible. How do we read this thing? How do we make sense of this thing? I'll remind you that we are doing our Bible reading plan for 2020. We have right now over 80 people on our Facebook group that are, are doing this together, and that's exciting for me. Um, <clears throat> the orange sheet, if you didn't get one of these last week, they're in the lobby on the table. There's also co- free copies of the Bible out there, so if you don't have a, a Bible in easy-to-understand English, uh, then you can go and take one of those Bibles for free as a gift from our church and, and start doing the Bible reading plan and catch up to where we are today at Luke chapter 13 today. <clears throat> so it's not too late to get started on that. And you have to apologize, I've got a bit of a raspy voice, so... I might be drinking lots of water through the course of this message. So, how to read the Bible? Well, in answering that question, we have to begin by by identifying some very basic things about how the, the Bible's organized. And for some of you, this is, this is like Sunday school stuff from when you were a kid. But for other people, this is new information. And, and so let me just go over some of these things very quickly. Um, so we call the Bible the good book, but truthfully, it's not a book. It's multiple books. You go to the next slide. <clears throat> the books of the Bible. The Bible literally means books. That's what the word Bible means, books. So we should think of the Bible not as a single book, but as a library of books, 66 books, 39 of them in the first much larger section called the Old Testament, and 27 in the second, much smaller section called the New Testament. These 66 different books were written by about 40 different authors from a variety of backgrounds spanning about a thousand or so years that these books were written over that period of time. So with that in mind, it doesn't always make sense when we come to the Bible to read it from front to back, to start in Genesis and go to Revelation. It's a library, so you can pull down books from the shelf at different times to read. Our Bible reading plan, for example, starts in Luke, Um, and that's the story of Jesus. I decided that would probably be a pretty good place to start since we're all about Jesus as Christians. Um, And then from Luke, we're going to the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke. Luke wrote... Luke was sort of part one, and Acts is sort of part two, the same author, and uh, and it's the story of the church. And then from there, we're going to jump back to Genesis and get some of the foundational uh, stuff at the beginning of the story, which provides the context for the story of Jesus. One of the challenges of, of reading straight through from Genesis to Revelation, from cover to cover, is that you start at Genesis, and, and Genesis is, is a pretty pretty interesting story, right? You've got the creation of the world, and you've got Noah's Ark, and the Tower of Babel, and, and then you've got Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and, and, uh, and Joseph, and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. Right? That's a great story, right? And, and, then, and so Genesis is pretty good. Uh, pretty interesting. And then you get to Exodus, and Exodus is like, well, that's Moses, and they're in Egypt, and let my people go, and the plagues, and, and then the parting of the Red Sea, and the Ten Commandments coming down off the mountain. I can see Charlton Heston now. You know, it's just, 
It's epic. It's wonderful. It's great. It's an exciting story. It's, and then you get to Leviticus. And Leviticus is a little more challenging. Leviticus is, is, is just a long list of laws. And they're, challenge, they're hard for us to understand. They're, they're kind of outdated. They're strange. Um, very detailed. And uh, a lot of people jump ship when they get to Leviticus. They go, um, all right, I'm not so sure I can stick with this thing. And then, after, I mean, if you make it through Leviticus, then you still have to do uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy uh, before the story gets interesting again. So it's, it's hard. Now, I wanted to put a caveat in there that to say that Leviticus is actually an awesome book of the Bible. They're all good, but Leviticus is an actually an awesome book of the Bible. And I preached on Leviticus one time. I did a whole series on Leviticus, and it's really cool. Um, but for the average Bible reader, you get to it and you go, oh boy, what am I doing? So use a Bible reading plan is good advice. Um, I happen to think that ours is great since I came up with it. Um, so get started if you haven't yet. Get started. It's good. Um, so we have two main sections in our library uh, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament, 66 books in total. Each book is divided up into chapters. If you go to the next slide, each book is divided into chapters, and each chapter is divided up into verses. So if you're reading the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters, and the little numbers are the verses. Uh, these, these were not part of the originals. Uh, they, were, they were added. The numbers were added um, later at various times, completed in the 1500s. And the point was to make the scriptures easier to navigate and to reference. Uh, let's talk about the language of the Bible for a minute. The Bible was originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, not King James English. <laughs> I was talking with someone this morning about that. They were told when they were growing up that Jesus had a King James Bible under his arm. <laughs> and it was probably leather bound and probably had Jesus written on the front of it. Um, <laughs> Not true. The Bible was the, the Old Testament. I have a copy here, and I'll put these up front if you're interested in looking through it at the end. The, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. This is a Hebrew copy of the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, and with a little bit of Aramaic in there in a few places, um, specifically the books of Daniel, Ezra, and one verse in Jeremiah that are Aramaic. And then the New Testament is entirely in Greek, uh, except for a few Aramaic words. And so there's a copy of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament for you to look at if you want to. Um, and thankfully, we don't have to learn uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek to understand the Bible because, thankfully, we have very good translations of the Bible in almost every language on earth, including English. We have lots of, of English translations and good English translations. By the way, you don't have to read the King James if that's what you grew up on and you think that's the only authorized version of the English Bible. It's not. In fact, I wouldn't recommend that you read the King James, uh, which might be, for some of you, shocking, but um, I don't think it, if you can't under, make sense of it, why are you reading it? It's, the point is to understand it, um, not just to read the, the traditional things. So, so find a, a translation of the Bible that, that um, makes sense for you, that, that you can understand. Now, I think that should do it for most of the basics. Now, let's get to the meat of what I want to talk about this morning. And that is how to read the Bible. How to read the Bible. We have five points, uh, but we're only going to do the first two points this morning uh, because for the sake of time. So next week we'll do the, the other three. So the first point in how to read the Bible is to read it with accuracy. When you go to seminary, as I did, to learn to be a pastor, 
One of the first courses that you take is a class called hermeneutics. This is a class all about how to read and interpret the Bible correctly, with accuracy. And it's important that we do our best to read and interpret the Bible correctly. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, uh, Paul writes, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, rightly handling the word of God, the scriptures. Do your best. That means it's very possible to not handle it rightly. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written that. And so we need to do our best to handle it rightly. How many times have you heard people take a Bible verse completely out of context and apply it in a way that was never intended by the authors? Yeah, or, or how many times have you been in a Bible study where the discussion turns into four or five completely different personal ideas as to what a passage means with little discussion about what it actually means? Right? That happens. And I know it's not always clear exactly what it actually means, but our goal should be to try to determine what it actually means, not just what I think it means. So in order to make sense of the Bible, the first thing we have to do is try our best to understand what the author intended when he wrote what he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Not about what I think, it's about what the author intended. In the book, uh, Grasping God's Word, this is my hermeneutics textbook, and I meant to bring it up here to show you, but um, this was my textbook for hermeneutics and Grasping God's Word. Uh, they, the Duval and Hayes set out a method for properly reading and applying the Bible. And the first step, they say, is grasping the text in their town. That's the first step. When we, when we try to ap- approach the Word of God with accuracy, the first thing we got to do is grasp it in their town, meaning what did this mean to the person who wrote it and to their original audience? What did this scripture passage mean in the original setting, in their town? So to answer that question, you have to look at stuff like the historical and cultural context that it was written in. What was happening at the time? Who was the author? To whom were they writing? When was this written? Where was this written? What was this addressing? What things were happening historically at that time? Those kinds of questions that help you understand uh, the historical and cultural context. Another thing is you need to understand the context within the rest of the chapter of, of what you're reading. So if you just read a couple of verses it's, and you don't make sense of it, it's wise to kind of read the whole chapter. And then beyond that, to read the whole book. Uh, and beyond that, to, to make sense of it in the context of the, of the uh, entire Testament, if it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, and then in light of the whole Scriptures. So, so does, if something maybe jumps out at you, you go, that doesn't sound right with what I understand somewhere else, then maybe uh, we need to interpret it in light of those other things. So that kind of thing. Understanding the context liter- liter- in terms of the literary part of it. And then the other thing is the genre of literature that, is, that it's written in. And this is so important. You know, am I reading a, a historical account? Or am I reading a letter? Or is this prophecy? Or is this poetry, like the book of Psalms, which are these actual songs? It's, the, it's a hymn book of, of the Jewish people. Uh, is this wisdom literature? What is this? The book of Revelation, for example, falls into an ancient literary genre called apocalypse which is a very specific type of ancient literature filled with extremely symbolic language. 
And that's really important to know when you read the book of Revelation. Because you might uh, come and read the book of Revelation and read things literally in the book of Revelation that were never meant to be taken literally by the author. It's a, lot of mis- a, a, a mistake that a lot of people make when they read the book of Revelation. You know, it's like, oh, a dragon with three heads came out of the ocean. And it's oh, there's going to be a dragon with three heads come out of the ocean. Like, no, it's, it's, that's not, it's not literal. It's, sim- it's symbolizing something else. That's the genre of literature. So it's a good time to pause and explain something. Because some people say, and I was told in church when I was a kid, you have to take the Bible literally. And I say, yes... And no, uh, you take it literally when it's intended to be taken literally, and you don't when it's not. For example, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. But we don't assume that he meant he's literally a loaf of bread. Right? He's talking in allegory. Or when God says, so, you know, things like God reached down his hand, you know, and touched a, a person. Well, we, we don't imagine a hand from heaven literally came down from the sky. This is symbolic language, right? These are very obvious examples, but you see my point. Not everything in the Bible is always meant to be taken literally. And likewise, understanding the genre of what you're reading helps you read it correctly. You know, if you are reading an autobiography of someone, you're reading that differently than you're going to read a user's manual for your new dishwasher, right? Or you're going to read a, a biology textbook differently than, with a different lens than you read the newspaper, right? So understanding the genre of literature is really important, and the Bible has several different genres in it. Okay, so just keep that in mind. So the first thing we've got to do when we read the, when we read the Bible is read it with accuracy, and in order to do that, We need to first grasp the text in their town. Try to get a sense of what the author intended and the audience understood in the original context. So the book uh, that I was referencing, my textbook, uses this illustration, this graphic of their town and our town. Uh, Our town is, of course, in our modern world and the time we live in. And there's this river that flows between the two towns. This is the river of time. This is the river of 2,000 years. The, the river of cultural differences and language differences and, and, and the fact that we are living under the new covenant and not the old covenant and all these sorts of things. These are the, this is the river that separates us from that original context. But there's a bridge. And that bridge is called the principalizing bridge. This is, this is the big idea. This is the... This is the uh, theological principle, the timeless truth that we can find that does, in that passage of Scripture that doesn't depend on the original context, but transcends time and place and gets to the heart of God. So the first step is to grasp the text in their town. What did that make? What, what, what made sense? Uh, how did this make sense to them? And then we can say, what's the, what's the timeless principle in here? What's the, what's the big idea that gets to the heart of God? And we can use that to then cross the bridge into our town and apply it in our town. So that's the third step, is grasping the text in our town. What does this mean for me? First, what did this mean to them? And then, what does this mean for me? Now, this is an entire seminary course that I'm trying to explain in the first point of a five-point sermon. So please understand that we're just scratching the surface. 
the general idea, grasp the text in their town, cross the principalizing bridge, and then we can grasp and apply it in our town. Now, I'm going to use an example from Scripture. And I debated whether or not to use this, but we've got lots of time. So, um, we're going to use an example from Scripture, and we're going to walk through these steps together through, with this passage of Scripture so we can practice it in, in live. We're going to practice this in real time, okay? So you can get a taste of it. So the sample text this morning that we're going to use is this one, Leviticus 19.28. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Anyone who's watching The Mandalorian, I have spoken. Okay? I have spoken. Do not tattoo yourselves. I have spoken. This is the word of the Lord. This is the way. Now, if you don't bother to try and grasp the text in their town, you might immediately jump to the conclusion that it is a sin to get a tattoo full stop because Leviticus 19.28 says, You shall not tattoo yourselves. Seems pretty straightforward. Don't get a tattoo, you heathens. That's the sermon for today. We'll see you next Sunday. But hold on. What's going on here in Leviticus? Why would God put this in the law? And should I read a law in Leviticus the same way that I read the commands of Jesus in the New Testament, for example? Or why would God, why would, why would God forbid His people from getting tattoos at this time in history? These are these sorts of questions that we have to ask when we come to stuff like this. So, grasping the text in their town. What's the historical cultural context in which God said this to his people? Well, Leviticus was written and spoken from God through Moses to a Jewish audience. To a Jewish audience preparing to move into their promised land that was inhabited by and surrounded by pagan nations. So God gave the law to the Israelites at that time in large part the whole law was given to the Israelites in large part to set them apart from the pagan nations that were, they were surrounded by and that were living in the land where they were about to enter. So one of the purposes of the law was to make the Jewish people different than the, uh, than the pagans, from those who didn't honor God. It was to set them apart. It was to make them holy. That's what the word holy means, to be set apart, to be different than those around you. And so that was part of what it was all about. And one of the practices of the pagans at that time was tattooing their bodies with the names of their false gods as a sign of devotion and worship. It was almost like branding themselves as, as belonging to their, to their gods. So in that context, the one true God, the God of Israel, instructs His people, don't get tattooed. Why? Because getting a tattoo at that time was an intentional pagan act of worship. That's what the pagans do to honor their gods. And I want you to be different than the pagans. So that's the historical cultural part of it in their town. How about the literary part of it? What are we reading here? This is Leviticus. Leviticus is part of the Jewish law. The old covenant. God's covenant relationship he entered into with the Jewish people for a certain period of time before Jesus came. It's not part of the new covenant. As Christians, we are not bound by the Jewish law anymore. Praise God. That's one of the major themes in the New Testament. Repeated over and over and over again. 
And I don't understand. I have some friends who are like Hebrew roots people. And they say Christians ought to obey the Jewish law. And I say, what are you talking about? Read the New Testament. I was like, Paul's whole thing was that we don't have to anymore. Um, I don't understand it. Hebrews 8.13, for example, says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It can't be more clear than that. As Christians, we're not bound by the Jewish law anymore. We are new covenant people. Praise God. I think that's good news. Really good news. Because there's 500 and some Jewish laws. And I really don't want to have to like, wear not mixed clothing and, and do all the strange things that are in the Jewish law that set them apart from the pagan nations. That's, it's, it's, like, it's too hard. I thank God for that. So when you think about those factors, you think, okay. So that's the text in their town, in their context. And we're going to cross the principalizing bridge. What's the big idea here? Well, is the principle that we shouldn't get tattoos? No, not at all. The big idea, the underlying principle is don't participate in the wickedness of the world you're immersed in. Don't engage in the worship of false gods. It's a call to holiness. In that context, and for the Jewish people, that meant don't get a tattoo because that's what the pagans do to worship their false gods. In our context, it could be something entirely different, right? Don't listen to gangster rap music that objectifies women or don't do this or that other thing that is, 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 is against what Christ wants for you. Those sorts of ideas. Or don't be so obsessed with greed and wealth that you ignore your neighbor who is poor and hungry. These kinds of ideas. It doesn't mean... It's the tattoo thing is, is just... In their context was the, was the, uh, was the thing. But in our context, it's, it, it's something entirely different. So can a Christian get a tattoo? You might be wondering. And I say, sure. If that's your thing, it's not a sin. If you want to go and get a tattoo of CTV's Bruce Frisco, like some guy in New Glasgow did a few years ago, power to you. Of course. Be mindful of what you're getting tattooed. Right? Um, I have a friend who was, in his, before he came to Christ, he was involved in uh, gangs. He was kind of sort of like a drug lord, and, um, and he got tattoos that were the symbols of his gang, and all the gang members got the, these tattoos, and it was to, to symbolize their devotion to their gang. And that's the exact same thing that was happening in the Old Testament, right? This, this branding your devotion to something other than God. So, so that, I would say, yeah, that was a sin for him to do that. Of course, he's saved now, and, and God has forgiven that sin, thank God. But... Um, you know, maybe people are getting tattoos of things that are inappropriate or whatever. So just keep that in mind, right? What you're getting tattooed. Uh, all, you know, be mindful of how you're spending money. Tattoos are expensive. Is that a good use of your money? Be mindful of the people in your life and what they want, right? Maybe you're married and your spouse wants to get a tattoo. Uh, or you want to get a tattoo and your spouse is like, no, I don't really want you to get a tattoo. You're like, well, I'm going to go get one anyway. Well, that's pretty disrespectful of your spouse. So that might be wrong. Or maybe you're a young person and your parents say you're not allowed to get a tattoo and you go and get one anyway. Well, that's disobeying your parents. So there's a whole lot of factors in there about whether or not it's okay to get a tattoo or not. But in and of itself, nothing sinful about getting a tattoo. And that's my opinion, and you might have a different one. So, keep that in mind. But the real timeless application of this verse in Leviticus isn't about tattoos at all. It's about holiness. And we get to that understanding 
when we take the time to read the Bible with accuracy to the best of our ability. And we're not always going to get it right. And that's okay. There's a lot of people that disagree about a lot of things when it comes to the Bible. Uh, and and don't, let, don't let worry about reading it potentially wrong stop you from reading it altogether. Because uh, we are going to stumble through and that's okay. There are some resources that can help you read the Bible accurately. A good study Bible is a great resource. I would really recommend that if you can make the investment in a good study Bible, that would be so helpful. Um, and there's, there's different study Bibles, right? There's some study Bibles that are written by a group of scholars, like the ESV study Bible. Um, that, that's my favorite. That's what I use, the ESV study Bible. I love it. It's written by a large group of people. Um, there's also study Bibles that were written by individual people. And I think that's less of a great thing because you know, you're just getting one person's opinion on that as opposed to a group of people. You might the Ryrie study Bible or Schofield or the MacArthur study Bible. Still good, but I'd recommend something by a group of people. Um, there's also life application study Bibles which help you cross the principalizing bridge, right? They do that work, help you do that work for you. They say, here's what it meant in the original context and here's how you can apply it to your life. So that's really helpful. Uh, the NLT has a life application study Bible. Um, commentaries, online tools like biblestudytools.com where you can look up other verses and stuff. So great resources for you um, as you're trying to make sense of the Word of God with accuracy. All right, so that's the first point. Here's the second point. Now, we also shouldn't try to understand the Scriptures all by ourselves. Read it with others. Reading and studying the Scriptures at home by yourself is a very good thing to do. Uh, but it was a fairly uncommon thing until the modern era. In biblical times, they didn't have copies of the Scripture themselves. Most copies of the Scriptures were typically stored in the synagogue in little rooms at the back. And then on Sabbath days and on other days as people would gather, somebody would come out and open a scroll and read it and then they would discuss it together. Um, it wasn't really until the invention of the printing press that the Bible became readily available to average folks. The reality is we read and interpret and study the Scriptures best when we do so in community. When we're able to share with one another what we're reading and bounce ideas off one another. To test our understanding against the understanding of other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is called community hermeneutics. Community hermeneutics. Uh, John Howard Yoder, he was uh, a Mennonite sort of theologian. Um, he wrote a lot of really interesting things. He says this. He was an, an, of the Anabaptist tradition. He makes this very strong statement. He says, The text can be properly understood only when disciples are gathered together to discover what the Word has to say to their needs and concerns. Now, I don't know if I would go quite as far as Yoder on that, but I do think it's an interesting idea. And I agree that we need corporate discernment. Corporate discernment as we interpret the Word of God. We benefit from being part of a Christian community where we can discuss the Scriptures together. I just want to read a passage from uh, Acts chapter 8. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. This is um, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And the, early, the early Christians here, Philip, one of the first Christians, and starting in verse 26. 
of Acts chapter 8. And the, word, the text will be on the screen as well. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official to Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So obviously there was, uh, unlike most people, Candace and her people had some copies of the scriptures, at least the book of Isaiah. Um, And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. What a cool story. He's just The Holy Spirit is prompting him all the way along to, to interact with this man. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the, Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he, the Ethiopian, said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. I can't wait till we get into the book of Acts in our Bible reading. It's so cool. Uh, stories like this all through. I just, it's so, such a neat story. But my point I want to make here is this, that this Ethiopian fellow is reading the book of Isaiah, and he comes across something, and he, he doesn't, can't make sense of it. And so Philip says, do you understand? And the guy says... How can I, unless someone helps me, you know? And so Philip sits with him, and while traveling along, Philip explains the scriptures to him. They have this little traveling Bible study, right? Uh, the brotherhood of the traveling Bible study. <laughs> and, um, and it's great, and he leads him to Jesus, and, and then he, he gets baptized that very same moment. By the way, if you're interested in being baptized, as a side note, I'm hoping that probably about April sometime, maybe right after Easter, that we'll have some baptisms uh, here planned. So, if you're interested in being baptized, come and speak to me. I'd love to have that conversation with you. Um, If you know Jesus as your Savior, just like the Ethiopian, there's nothing that prevents you from being baptized. Keep that in mind. Okay, so, this Ethiopian guy doesn't understand the Scripture. Philip sits with him and helps him make sense of it. And it's true, the Bible can be hard to understand sometimes, even as we come to Luke uh, in the Bible reading plan. 
Uh, it's sometimes very challenging to make sense of what is Jesus talking about. Um, but we don't have to try and figure it out all by ourselves. That's my point. We have one another to sit and learn together. This is one of the reasons uh, that we're going to be relaunching in a big way small groups uh, sometime probably in September. Um, we also have several Bible study groups meeting currently. If you, if you have a bulletin, there's a little pink sheet in there that is the February calendar and you can see when all those groups are meeting and we would love for you to be part of one of those Bible studies. Plus, I'm loving our Facebook group where we're discussing the Bible reading that we're doing together and people are asking questions and and it's awesome. We need each other, folks. We need each other. Don't try to do this thing alone. This Christianity thing. One of the very first things that Jesus did when he started his ministry was build a team of disciples around him. He is the founder of the church. It was his idea. He said, I will build my church. Jesus said that. And we are so privileged to be part of this huge family, this global movement, the church, a fellowship of disciple makers that has been around for 2,000 years. So we don't have to try and interpret the scriptures all by ourselves because, praise God, we have the work of centuries of faithful men and women who've gone before us and a present community available to us to help us grow and learn together. Amen? Amen. And isn't it good to be part of the church? Yeah, I think so. And thank God that we have the Holy Spirit as well. So we understand the scriptures most fully when the Holy Spirit is illuminating it to us. And that's what we're going to start with next week as we continue this. So today, read it with accuracy. Try your best to understand what it meant to the original audience so that you can cross the principalizing bridge and make sense of it in your own world. And also, don't try to do it alone. Read it with other people in, in Bible studies or small groups or online or whatever. Reading commentaries, studies, Bibles, whatever, so that, you can get other, so that you can tap into the wisdom of other people to try to understand the Scriptures. And next week, February the 2nd, read it with the Holy Spirit is where we're going to start. And then two more points after that. Uh, just I'm going to give you a little preview of what's to come. We've got everything planned all the way to the end of February. So next week is How to Read the Bible Continued. Then on February the 9th, the series continues. We're going to, is a sermon called Long Story Short, where we're going to try to summarize the entire 66 books of the Bible in one message and help you understand. Yeah, I know. It's, I'm going to speak really fast. Uh, what's the overarching theme of the scripture? Uh, and then on February the 16th, I'm excited about this. We're going to have a Q&A. So, uh, if you have any questions about the Bible, general questions or specific Bible questions, uh, feel free to email me, text me, call me, send me a note, whatever, with your question. And uh, we're also going to take questions live off the floor that Sunday morning. So I'm going to have to be on my toes. Um, But uh, I might not be able to answer everybody's questions that Sunday, but we're going to do our best. And if I can't answer it in the service uh, because there's too many questions, then I'll answer it to you personally. But yeah, I'm excited about that. Bible Q&A on uh, February the 16th. And then on February the 23rd, Reverend Dr. Anna Robbins, president of Acadia Divinity College, is going to be here to speak and give us an update about ADC. And... uh, There's actually going to be something on Saturday as well with Acadia, and we'll give you more information about that hopefully next Sunday. All right. Kyla, can you come, please? And Kevin is going to... you get your harmonica with you, brother? All right.
We're going to uh, sing this song we sang last week, Ancient Words. I love it. And uh, let me just close with a word of prayer. Mm. Father God, we thank you again this morning. We thank you that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us through your word. Thank you that you can be known. Even though you are so huge and so beyond our ability to understand, yet you have chosen to reveal yourself. We thank you, God, for that. We thank you for the teachings that you've given us through your word. We thank you for the principles, the big ideas, the theology that we can, that we can draw from it, that can, we can apply to our lives and apply it in the 21st century, Lord. Even though you don't call us to be first century people, Lord, we can take these first century ideas that are still so relevant and apply them to our 21st century world. And we thank you so much, God, for your incredible, powerful, unchanging, timeless word. God, as we read it, we pray that you would help us. Help us to understand. Your Holy Spirit would guide our thoughts. That as a community, we would, we would work together in studying the Scriptures. And we would do our best to rightly handle the word of truth. Thank you, God, for the ancient words ever true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.